Thank you, Steve. Well, it's great to have the opportunity of uh, worshiping the Lord together in song. That was great. Now, on many occasions, as I've been speaking to groups where there have been older adults, in fact, it just happened to me yesterday morning, uh, after I've spoken, these older adults have come up to me and said, uh, well, I wish I'd heard that 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, It would have saved me a lot of trouble. Well, today I want to talk to you about some of the things that the older adults have mentioned to me that they wish they had heard 20 or 30 or 40 years ago that it would have saved them a lot of trouble. And as a basis for our thoughts, I want to direct your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and in particular, verses 1 through 29. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read the entire passage because it's too long, and we'll be referring to it as we go along. But in this particular chapter, we have the story of Amnon, who according to 2 Samuel 3 and verse 2, was David's oldest son. And in this story, uh, it also involves uh, a half-sister of his by the name of Tamar. Uh, It also involves a friend of his by the name of Jonadab. And it involves David. And then later in the story, Absalom comes on the scene as well. But in this passage, we have a young man who probably was a teenager or just out of his teenage years who made some pretty serious mistakes. And as a result of these mistakes that he made, his own life was destroyed. A young lady's reputation and life was ruined. A lot of people who were associated with him experienced a large amount of pain and heartache. And God's name was reproached. I want to talk to you today about the mistakes that Amnon made because I believe that there are thousands of young people even Christian young people who are making the same mistakes and as a result are hurting themselves, hurting other people, and hurting the cause of Christ. In some instances, the mistakes that these young people are making are not as visible, nor are the consequences as visible as it was in the case of Amnon. In other instances, the mistakes are just as visible And the consequences are just as noticeable as it was in the case of Amnon. But whether the mistakes and the results are well-known or unknown, dramatically displayed or secretly experienced, they are just as real and just as devastating. Because people today are making the same mistakes that Amnon made, Their lives are being ruined, heartache and pain are being experienced. And so I want us to look at two or three of the mistakes that Amnon made. And I'm doing that in the light of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, which says that these things in the Old Testament were written as examples to us that we might be instructed in order that we wouldn't make the same mistakes. What were the mistakes that Amnon made? Well, for one thing, Amnon made the mistake of equating lust with love. In verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 13, he had a friend by the name of Jonadab who came to him and he knew that something was wrong in Amnon. Uh, He wasn't very happy. He saw it on his face. And so he said to Amnon, what's the problem, Amnon? 
And Amnon said, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Now he says, the problem is that I'm in love. And in this case, at this point, it was unrequited love. Now Amnon said he was in love. But in reality, what Amnon was experiencing was not love, it was lust. He was infatuated with Tamar. He called it love, but in reality it was not love at all. There are at least 14 differences between lust and love which are illustrated in this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 13. For one thing, lust focuses on external beauty. Lust focuses on a person's physical appearance. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 1, we read now, It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And so Amnon lusted after her because of her physical appearance. Love isn't focused on somebody's physical appearance. Love is concerned about the whole person. It's not primarily focused on the physical attractiveness. It's focused on the totality of that person. Lust focuses on what I want, what the other person can do for me, how the other person can serve me. That's what Amnon was thinking about. He was thinking about what Tamar could do for him, what happiness she could bring to him. Whereas love says, what can I do for the other person? How can I serve the other person? In John 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians 2.20 talks about Christ loving me and giving himself for me. And so lust focuses on what the other person can do for me, and love focuses on what I can do for the other person. Lust focuses on certain aspects of the other person. Love wants to get to know the whole person. Amnon wasn't interested in getting to know Tamar as a whole person. He didn't want to know what she thought. He didn't know what it, want to know what her interests were. He didn't want to know what her likes and dislikes were. He didn't want to know what her feelings were. He didn't want to know what her aspirations were. He didn't want to know her as a total person. He just wanted to focus on that certain aspect. She turned him on. She was attractive. She was appealing to him. She had sex appeal in his eyes. Number four, lust is primarily concerned about physical contact. It's primarily concerned about kissing and hugging. That's what happened later in the passage where Amnon forced her. He violated her. He, with physical force, made her cooperate with him in physical contact. Love is not focused on physical contact. Love is concerned about being friends. Love is concerned about doing things together. Love is concerned about talking and sharing and encouraging the other person. Number five, lust focuses primarily on feelings. It's feeling-oriented. Especially it focuses on sexual feelings or desires. In lust, the person says, she or he turns me on. Love is involved with having good attitudes, having good thoughts, having good motives, having good concerns, having good desires, having good actions toward the other person. 
Love respects and regards the other person in totality, whereas lust is focused on feelings, especially sexual feelings. Number six, this passage illustrates the fact that lust is pushy. It's domineering. It forces itself on the other person. This you have in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. We read, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. And when she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my brother. And she resisted. She said no. But in spite of the fact that Tamar said no, the scripture indicates that Amnon forced himself upon her. That's lust. Lust is pushy. Lust is domineering. Lust will not take no for an answer. Whereas love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is not rude. It's not unmannerly. It is kind. It does not behave itself unseemly. Number seven. This passage illustrates the fact that lust is willing to lie. Lust is willing to deceive. Lust is willing to manipulate to get its own way. Amnon lied to his father David. He lied to Tamar. Why? To get his own way. He didn't care what means he used to get his own way just as long as he got it. Whereas 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. Love is truthful, whereas lust is willing to manipulate and to lie. Number eight. This passage illustrates the fact that lust is willing, unwilling to listen to reason. When he tried to do this with Tamar, in verses 12 through 14, she tried to give him some legitimate reasons why he shouldn't do this. And they were good reasons. We'll uh, perhaps mention them later on. But she reasoned with him. She said, don't do this, Amnon. And here are three very important reasons why you shouldn't do it. But at this point, Amnon was unwilling to listen to reason. He wouldn't listen to logic. Whereas love is willing to listen to reason. Love is willing to hear logical thoughts. Number nine. This passage indicates that lust is overpowering. It seems almost unbearable. At the beginning of the passage, you read that uh, Amnon, verse 2, was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was his half-sister, you understand. Uh, her mother was another uh, woman. But he was frustrated. It was overpowering. And in the next verse, uh, we read in, in verse 4, uh, he talks about being ill. It made him ill. It just took control of him. Now, love is not like that. Love constrains us to act constructively rather than destructively. If you do something that is destructive in spite of the fact that you know it's wrong, that's not love. That's lust. Number ten. The passage indicates that lust becomes very frustrated when it doesn't get its own way. He was frustrated. 
He was bent out of shape. It just controlled him. Uh, he was uh, upset. He was distressed. He was so distressed that it was obvious to everybody else because in the next verse, uh, verse 4, Jonadab came to him and said, Why are you so depressed? Morning after morning. It was something that just went on and on. That's what lust does. It frustrates you. It distresses you. It depresses you if you don't get that lust fulfilled. Whereas love is patient, the Bible says, and love is kind. Even if love doesn't get its own way, it doesn't get distressed, it doesn't get depressed, it doesn't get frustrated. Because love is concerned about the well-being of the other person, not just getting my own way. Number 11. The passage indicates that lust develops quickly and on the basis of a limited acquaintance. You see, Amnon really didn't know Tamar. That's evident later on when he threw her out of his house. He didn't want anything more to do with her. After he got to know her a little bit, she wasn't as attractive and appealing as she once had been, which indicates to me that uh, he really didn't know her. It had developed rather quickly and on the wrong basis. Whereas love grows slowly. And love is based on increasing knowledge. The Bible in Philippians 1.9 uh, says that love ought to be accompanied with wisdom and understanding. You know, it's as we get to know the other person, what they're thinking, what they're like, what their aspirations are, what their interests are what their fears are, what their goals are. It's as we get to know that other person, our devotion and commitment to that other person increases in an appropriate way. Number 12, the passage indicates that lust can turn to dislike or hatred very quickly. Lust, you're all over the map with lust. One day, uh, you think she's the greatest thing in the world or he's the greatest thing in the world and uh, then the next day or shortly thereafter, uh, you change your mind. That's the way lust is. It just is up and down and all over the place. Lust can turn to dislike or hatred very quickly because we read in verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. Same day. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and get out of here. Go away. Number 13, the passage indicates that lust must have everything now. Lust says, I've got to have it now. Lust says, I can't wait. You see that in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 12 through 17, where uh, Tamar gives him some reasons for waiting. She says, let's do this in a, an appropriate and a proper way. There's a way to do this. If you want me, here's how you can have me. And she says, go to my father, David, and talk to David about this. And maybe David will give me to you. That's the proper way of doing it. But Amnon had to have it right away. Whereas the Bible says, love is patient. Love is willing to wait until marriage for the kind of thing that Amnon wanted. And then number 14, as I look at this passage, I see 
That lust isn't very concerned about how what happens will affect others. Amnon didn't care about Tamar. He didn't care about David. He didn't care about Absalom. The only person he cared about was himself. And he wasn't thinking about how his actions might affect other people. Whereas the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, love seeketh not her own. And Galatians 5 and verse 13 says that love serves other people. It doesn't focus on being served, but rather it focuses on serving the other person. And so there you have 14 differences between lust and love. And Amnon made a serious mistake in that he equated lust with love. Some time ago, I came across an article in which one person put the difference between lust and love in this way. This person said, girls need to prove their love through illicit sex relations like a moose needs a hat rack. Why not prove your love by sticking your head in the oven or turning on the gas or playing leapfrog in the traffic? It's just about a safe. Clear the cobwebs out of your head. Any fellow who asks you to prove your love is trying to take you for the biggest, most gullible fool you, who ever walked. That proving bit is one of the oldest and rottenest lines ever invented. Does he love you? Nah. Someone who loves you wants whatever's best for you. But now figure it out. He wants you to commit an immoral act, surrender your virtue, throw away your self-respect, risk the loss of your precious reputation, and risk getting into trouble. Does that sound as though he wants the best for you? This is the laugh of the century. He wants what's, what he thinks is best for him. He wants a thrill. He can brag about at your expense. Love? Who's kidding whom? A guy who loves a girl would sooner cut off his right arm than hurt her. In my opinion, this self-serving fella has proved that he doesn't love you. And so, don't make the mistake of equating lust with love. The second mistake that Amnon made was that he chose the wrong kind of friends for counsel. In verses 3 through 5, we read that Amnon had a friend. Well, I want to tell you something. If Jonadab was his friend, then who needs enemies? Jonadab was a friend in name only. In verse 3, we read that Jonadab was a very shrewd fellow. And the word shrewd means, uh, well, it may mean that he was intelligent, that he was smart, that he was knowledgeable. He wasn't any dumb-dumb. He wasn't dumber and dumber. And he was shrewd. And the word shrewd may also mean that he was underhanded, he was crafty, he was tricky, he was sly, he was deceitful, he was unscrupulous. In verse 4, he wasn't above using flattery. He comes to Amnon and he says, Oh, son of the king. Why didn't he just say, Hey, Amnon. I mean, he was buttering this guy up. You're the son of the king. And not only that, he was pretending that he really was concerned about Amnon. He was pretending that he was interested in Amnon. He wasn't. Later in the passage, he did the same thing with David. He buttered Amnon up here because he was thinking, well, if he's the son of the king, that means that I can be the friend of the son of the king and that'll be good for me. He didn't care about 
Amnon, he just cared about himself and saw this as an opportunity to get ahead. And later, after Amnon was killed, he goes to David and he does the same thing. He pretends that he really is concerned about David, that he's interested in David, and he kind of butters David up. Ah, he was a shrewd fella, a selfish fella, just out for himself. And verse 5, he gives uh, Amnon some advice. He says, uh, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come in and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. What is he telling Amnon to do? He's telling Amnon to be dishonest. He's telling Amnon to lie to his father. He's telling him to do whatever you must do to get whatever you want. Jonadab knew what Amnon wanted, and he encouraged him in committing sin. He encouraged him to do what would ultimately destroy Amnon, ruin Tamar, and hurt other people. And I say anyone who encourages anyone to do what Jonadab encouraged Amnon to do is not a friend. My friends, be aware of the fact that there is no matter in your life that is more important than the, friend, than the friends you choose to receive counsel from. Your friends will have a powerful effect on your life. For good or for evil, they'll either help you or they'll hurt you. We don't have time, but sometime go through the book of Proverbs. And notice what the book of Proverbs has to say about the danger of evil friends. The book of Proverbs starts with chapter 1 through verse 1 through chapter 5, talking about the people to whom the book was written. And it says it was written to young people. Basically, the book of Proverbs is a young person's book. It's written to give young people instruction. And so you have the introduction at the beginning in verses uh, 1 through uh, 5. And then the second thing that the book of Proverbs talks about is the young person's relationship with God. It talks about the fear of the Lord. That's After giving the introduction, the first thing it talks about is a young person's relationship with God. Uh, the second thing it talks about when it gets down to specifics is the young person's relationship with his parents. And you know what the third thing is the book of Proverbs focuses on after giving the introduction? It's the young person's relationship with other people, in particular evil friends. Those who come to you in verse 10 and say, Come, join with us in doing wickedness and evil. And what the Bible is saying, even by the way it positions that passage, the most important thing in your life is your relationship with God. At this point in your life as young people, the second most important matter in your life is your relationship with your parents. And the third, in terms of influence in your life, will be the kind of friends that you choose. The book of Proverbs has at least nine passages, go through it, that warn you against becoming friends with evil people. And then it turns around and it gives you a lot of encouragement to choose the right friends. Proverbs 13.20, for example, says, He who walks with a wise man becomes wise, but a companion of fools is going to be destroyed. And the wise person in, in Proverbs is not just somebody who's smart, intelligent. I mean, Jonadab was all of that. 
But the wise person is the person who sees life from God's perspective, lives life as God wants him to live, is devoted to living a holy and a godly life. That's the wise person. And the foolish person is the person who says, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do my own thing, go my own way, be my own boss. And so the second mistake that Amnon made was that he chose the wrong friend to receive counsel from. And I urge you young people, choose your friends carefully. Choose your friends carefully because there are Jonadabs all around you. There are Jonadabs on the television set. There are Jonadabs in the newspapers. There are Jonadabs on the radio. There are Jonadabs in the music world. There are Jonadabs in the books you read. There are Jonadabs in the churches that you go to. And there are Jonadabs here on the Master's College campus. Unfortunately, who will counsel you in a way that is really not biblical and godly. Beware of them. Your life can be destroyed by choosing the wrong kind of friends from whom you choose your counsel. Now, the third mistake that he made was that he made an idol out of sex. He made an idol out of sex. You see, here's Amnon. Remember who he was. He was the firstborn of David. He was David's oldest son, according to 2 Samuel 3 and verse 2. And what did that mean? That meant that he was next in line to be the king of Israel. If he had not been killed, technically, if it worked out the way it usually did, Amnon would have stepped into the position of being king of Israel. But he forsook all of that because he had to have sex. He knew the risks he was taking. Remember, his father was David, and David made some mistakes, but basically David was a godly man. He's called a friend of God. And I'm sure he knew that sex relations outside of marriage were wrong. But he didn't care. Didn't care if his dad didn't approve of it. He didn't care if it was going to ruin the life of Tamar. He didn't care if it was going to seriously affect his relationship with Absalom. He didn't care if God's name was reproached. More important to him than anything else was satisfying his own lust and his own desire. He made it an idol. It was more important than becoming king of Israel. It was more important than a good relationship with his father. It was more important than a good relationship with his brother. It was more important than a young lady's reputation. He had to have it. He made an idol out of sex. And I tell you, we're living in a world that has gone sex mad. Sex, sex, sex. We sell everything by means of sex appeal. Automobiles, I don't care what it is. People know that that's the way to market. And unfortunately, not only do people outside of the church make an idol out of sex, so do people in the church as well. Now, remember, young people, that sex was God's idea. He originated the idea. 
And that means that God approves of sex. He's not anti-sex. But God knows the purpose of sex, and He knows the place that sex should play in our lives and in our relationships. In His Word, He tells us that sex was made for married people and that it is to be enjoyed only by married people. In His Word, God indicates that it's to be a part of a total relationship, a relationship in which two people have committed themselves irrevocably and completely to each other. The two shall become one flesh. In His Word, God indicates that sex is not the only or even the most important thing in life. He warns us against making an idol out of it. Exodus 23, verse 3 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. In Colossians 3 and verse 5 and Ephesians 5 and verse 5, both talk about sexual immorality as being idolatry. How is it idolatry? In the same way that it was with Amnon. It was more important to him than pleasing God. It was more important to him than a relationship with others. It was more important to him than holiness. It was more important to him than purity. He had made an idol out of sex, and there are many who are doing the same thing today. And the Bible warns against that. In His Word, God tells us that fantasizing about sexual intimacy with anyone other than the person whom you're married is sin. Whoever looks upon a woman to lust her from his heart has already committed adultery with her. Even if you never commit the act, if you fantasize about it, and God says, you've broken the commandment, thou shalt not commit immorality. In His Word, God suggests that our sexual desires may easily get out of hand. We need to be aware of that. And so He says, don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Don't stoke the flames of your passion, because they can very easily get out of hand. In His Word, God declares that sexual promiscuity is serious, it's dangerous, it's This 13 forces, marriage is honorable in all things, and the marriage bed is undefiled. And the Greek word, which is translated marriage bed, is koite, from which we get our English word koitis, and he's talking about sex relations. He's saying marriage is honorable in all things, and sexual relations in marriage are undefiled. But fornicators, those who commit sex outside of marriage, and adulterers, those who commit illicit sex inside of marriage, God will judge. In Leviticus 20, it's called a disgraceful act. It's called lewd. It's called an abomination. And in Romans chapter 1, it says those who practice such things are worthy of death. In the Old Testament, one of the few things that a person uh, could be killed for, corporal, capital punishment, was to be meted on those who were involved in sexual activities outside of marriage. That's how serious God considers sexual immorality to be. And so Amnon didn't believe that promiscuity was serious. Tamar said he was. She gave him three reasons why they shouldn't do it. First of all, she said, you'll be violating me. Think of the impact that it's going to have on me. Second, she said, this isn't something that's done in Israel. We're the professing people of God, and the professing people of God don't act this way. Amnon, you're one of the professing people of God. And God's people don't act this way. And then thirdly, she said that it was a disgraceful thing. It was disgracing him. It was disgracing Tamar. It was disgracing his family. It was disgracing other people. And it was disgracing to God because we, as Mark read earlier from 1 Peter 2, are to be a holy people. And so she gave him a lot of good reasons for not doing it, but Amnon didn't care. He went ahead. 
He didn't believe it was serious. But Amnon learned that it was because his own life was taken because of this sin. Tamar's reputation was ruined. She was seriously affected by it. Absalom became angry and resentful. And David, his own father, experienced a lot of grief. My young people, I urge you not to make the mistake that Amnon made. Wait until marriage until you give yourself in sex relations. Save yourself and the other person for marriage. I urge you to learn to say no. And I assure you that when you're married, you'll be glad you did. Now let me give you just a few suggestions for overcoming temptation in this area. Let me give you a few suggestions. I just have to run through them because our time is just about gone. First of all, if you want to remain pure and holy, if you don't want to make the mistake that Amnon made, make sure that you're right, rightly ready to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ living in you can give you the strength to resist temptation. Secondly, develop and maintain a close, vital, and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to be a Christian. You've got to have a daily relationship with Jesus where you know him as your friend. And he really matters to you. It's not a distant Savior or Lord that will keep you from sin. It's one with whom you do business every day. Third, choose your best friends and closest people and, and uh, friends and closest associates from people who have the same commitments and values as you do. Make sure that the people who are your closest friends and associates have the same values. I'm not saying don't be friends with others. All I'm saying is your closest friends and associates. And there's plenty of Bible to support that. Number four, establish your standards clearly. What you will do and what you won't do. Commit yourself to it. Don't deviate from it. I have here a list of things that a person could write out. And I suggest think this thing through. Write it out. What will you do? What won't you do with another, uh, someone of the opposite sex? This one says, I will not get into a back seat of a parked car with my friend. I will not allow myself to be led to the shrubbery or lie on the ground in a secluded area. I will not be in a friend's bedroom at any time. I will not go inside any house with my friend if the parents are not home. I will not explore under a girl's clothing. I will not allow a boy to explore under my clothing. I will never undress in front of my friend or be undressed with my friend. I will never allow myself to be glued against the body of my friend. When our friendship begins to deepen, I will let my friends know early that I do not believe in petting or sex before marriage. I will not go to movies that arouse me sexually or look at pornographic pictures and so forth uh, through others. I have another one here which was written by a young man uh, as he began to get serious with a girl in terms of his commitment to that young lady. I really want Jesus to be the most important person in the world to me, and he gave it to this young lady so that she knew what his commitments were and asked her if she would agree with him, and on through 16 of these commitments. And so write out what your commitments will be as you think about your relationship with the other sex. And then, number five, enlist the help of your parents or other godly people. Make yourself accountable. Ask them to check up on you when you begin uh, to uh, go out with somebody. Ask them to ask you questions about what's happening in your relationship. Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, and many passages in Proverbs encourage you to do that. Number six, don't feed the flesh. 
And don't do anything that's going to stimulate or stir up the lust of the flesh. The Bible says don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Television, pornographic, pornography, petting and things like that. Anything that would stir up the flesh. Number seven, be alert and stay away from the places or situations where you could be tempted. Don't go to those places where you might be tempted. In 2 Samuel 13, Tamar went into his bedroom. At that point, she should have said, no, I won't go there. But she went in, and as a result of going to some place she shouldn't have gone, I'm not saying it was mostly Tamar's fault, but I'm saying she shouldn't have gone there. And so stay away from places where you might be tempted. Number eight. Reflect often on the story of Amnon or other Bible stories about the consequences of sexual immorality. Think about what happened with David. Think about what happened with Amnon. Think about what happened with other people in the Bible who committed sexual immorality. Number nine, think often about the good reasons for waiting. And there are four very good reasons for waiting until you get married. One is a physical reason. There's a high risk of contacting sexually transmitted diseases. Every year in America, 12 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases occur. And there's a possibility of pregnancy. One million teenagers every year get pregnant. 20,000 a week, 3,000 every day in the United States of America get pregnant. There are psychological reasons. Guilt, fear, depression, shame, lowered self-respect, or lowered respect for the other person. There are social and interpersonal reasons. Sex relations hinder the development of good relations. Listen, if you center your relationship around physical contact, you're going to pay for it when you get married. Having every evening and with just clawing all over with one another and centering it on, uh, touching and uh, hugging and all that, you are hindering the development of a good relationship, really getting to know that other person. The most important thing in marriage is companionship. And what should happen before marriage is you're just becoming friends. You're becoming companions, and when you get married, you're just better friends. And you're better companions who now can engage in sexual relations with one another. It'll hinder your relationship with your parents. It may hinder your relationship in terms of other people. It may prevent you from developing social skills because you don't have to talk when you're pawing all over one another. And it can affect your future relationship with your maiden family. Listen, you know, research indicates that 85% of the people who are teenagers or going through the adolescent period, 85% of them never marry the person with whom they had their first sexual experience. They thought they were going to get married, but 85%, 86% actually don't. 14% do, 86% don't. You think you're going to marry that person, but in 86% of the cases, the relationship doesn't last for more than one year. So there are social reasons. And then there are spiritual reasons. God says it is abominable, that it's a disgrace, and that those who commit those things are worthy of death. Well, there you have three of the mistakes that Amnon made. 
He equated lust with love. He chose the wrong friends for counsel. He made an idol out of sex. And my friends, I encourage you to take a lesson from Amnon and avoid these mistakes. Remember that what you do today will affect your tomorrow. It will. And remember that the mistakes that you make today often have very serious consequences in the future. Whatever you sow, the Bible says, you will also reap. And so it's not just a light, flippant matter. May God then challenge you from his word and me as well and make sure that we understand what real love is, make sure we understand from whom and where we should receive counsel and who should be our best friends, and make sure that we understand God's perspective on sex and commit ourselves to it. Let's stand and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're deeply grateful to you for giving us your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're thankful that you've given us all these examples in the word. You could have just covered them over and not said anything about it. But you put them in your word, not because you want to flaunt these things, but because you want to use them as warnings in our own lives that we should not go and do likewise. Father, will you help us to be so committed to our Lord Jesus Christ, developing our relationship with him, and above all else, we'll want to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him, that as obedient children, those who have committed themselves to the Lordship of Christ, that we might be holy even as you are holy. Help my friends here at the Master's College. Give them just a love and devotion for yourself. Help them to seek you. And then, Father, bless them with companionships and friendships that will be mutually provoking unto love and good works and that will be honoring and glorifying to you. If there are those here who are fiddling around in many of these areas, we pray today that you would bring conviction of sin upon them. We pray that you would bring them to the point of repentance where they would change, where they would seek counsel, uh, where they would uh, confess it to you, where they would break it off, and that they would determine from this time forward that they're going to have lives and relationships that will really be honoring to Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.